Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And joining us today is a critical race and whiteness studies scholar and the author of Why Race Still Matters. Thanks for joining us, Alana Lenton. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Alana, without you know giving too many spoilers, uh, why does race still matter? <laughs> why does race still matter? I think um, I'm going to preface this by just uh, acknowledging that I'm on Gadigal land and that's not disconnected to why race still matters. What I try to do in my book is talk about how race needs to be understood as a project and a process that's constantly in processes of adapting itself to the circumstances. And, you know, we shouldn't be thinking about coloniality, so ongoing colonialism, settler colonialism, if you like, in the Australian context as somehow separate to the racial project. And part of what I do in the book is try to explain why it's been quite convenient to think about race as being kind of you know, in one sphere. So, and particularly today, and maybe we can talk about this a bit later on in relation to the coronavirus pandemic. So thinking about race as something to do purely with genetics and biology and nothing or less to do with other, you know, political, social and economic processes. And part of what I'm trying to do is look at how it's integral to all of those processes. So there's a lot of discussion about uh, race and its meaning and relevance. In your book, you try and locate it within a broader historical narrative that, Mm -hmm. as you said, necessarily embraces colonialism and the ways in which race has been uh, constructed and then reinforced. Can you talk a little bit more about your conception of race and racism and also colonialism? So, I mean, I think about race, if you like, I mean, I suppose the kind of definition that I use is a technology for the maintenance of human difference. Uh, sorry, a technology for the uh, management of human difference, the purpose of which is the maintenance of white supremacy. The idea of race as a technology, I think, is useful because it makes us think of it having or being a set of tools that can be put to use in a variety of contexts. And one of the main contexts in which it was put to use, although not the original one, is within the colonial and the imperial project. So race really comes to fruition or is feel like it's tested out in a variety of contexts over this historical time. If we want to look at the kind of, you know, the 500 year history, uh, since the invasion of the Americas through the various colonial and imperial projects that get us to the present moment, it's tested out in these various regimes in quite different ways, right? So one of the people who's done 
quite nice work on this is Patrick Wolf uh, in his book uh, Traces of History. So he compares and contrasts the way in which race is operationalized in a variety of different contexts in relation to blackness, in relation to indigeneity, in relation to anti-Semitism. And then you can see quite clearly how race is made to mean in different ways in these different contexts. So rather than being this one unitary philosophy or ideology, which is the way that most people try, most people think about race in relation to racism as an idea or a set of ideas, it's actually better thought about as a set of processes or technologies that are actually enacted on particular populations in order to achieve particular outcomes, which ultimately, and if we want to boil everything down, is about maintaining white supremacy and enriching the West. There's, in this past week, there's been a lot of talk about the operationalization of race, uh, especially around securitization. Oh, yeah. Uh, I was wondering, could you explain to our listeners uh, and to me what's going on with the securitization debate? Well, you know, this is not my area, but I guess I have been doing a little bit of research into this since it's been setting Twitter aflame over the last few days. Uh, I, I have to say, you know, I'm... My background is in political sociology and cultural studies. This is a debate that's emerged in something called securitization studies, which is something which is a branch of international relations. And I have to say, I was completely unfamiliar with it. The only type of international relations that I really engage with is the race critical um, branch of international relations spearheaded by people like Robbie Shilliam, for example, whose work is very important for thinking about how race has been purposefully made absent in the field of international relations and how we need to look at how race is central rather than marginal to uh, that field and the sort of the policy making that's enacted, you know, the, the policy making that's inspired by academics working in the field of international relations. But the controversy that you're alluding to refers to an article that was written by two younger scholars whose names are Alison Howell and Melanie Richter Montpetit. Uh, Alison Howell works in the US and Richter Montpetit works at the University of Sussex, which is where I actually used to work before I moved to Australia. And they wrote an article in a journal called Security and Dialogue, or Security Dialogue, which again, I had never heard of before, called Is Securitization Theory Racist? Civilizationalism, Methodological Whiteness and Anti-Black Thought in the Copenhagen School. Now, the Copenhagen School, which I also was unfamiliar with until recently, was kind of initiated by uh, scholars working there. And I think the two main scholars are called Buzan and Waver. And Buzan and Waver, or Waver and Buzan, I think, in this particular article, so they responded in an article also in Security Dialogue, um, to these two scholars, to Howell and Richter Montpetit, taking great objection to the idea that their work could have anything to do with racism. And they published a short response in Security Dialogue, and they made it very clear that, that the journal hadn't been as, as amenable as they would have hoped to, you know, publishing their lengthy response. And then they published another lengthier response, which I think is 98 pages long. And believe you me, I have not read it because life is too short. <laughs> uh, so there's 98 page response as to um, why they have a problem with um, Howell and Montpetit, uh, Richter Montpetit's original uh, critique. Now, what I found really interesting about this and how it relates to my book, well, in a, in a, in a variety of ways. So in the second chapter of the book, I talk about a phenomenon that I call not racism. And not racism is not just about denying racism. So we're all familiar with that. You know, 
I'm not racist, but is um, something that we hear said very often. So somebody says something egregiously racist and then they try to climb back from it by, you know, sort of performing this moral outrage about how could you possibly call me racist? And this takes a number of forms. One of them, which is, you know, a very clear example is, is within the debate on immigration, right? So it's not racist to talk about migration having reached its limits or integration being a failure or the limits of multiculturalism, et cetera, et cetera. It's merely common sense. And not only is it common sense, but it's actually listening to people who many of the people who take this position claim have been left behind. And this is very often the mythical white working class, you know, the, the left behind of the Trump election, the left behind of uh, the Brexit referendum, and so on and so forth. So we've seen this kind of uh, argument play out in, in various forms. Um, and in the book, I analyze the work. Well, I don't know if we can call it work, but let's say the response of, of a number of British academics at the forefront of this is a guy called Eric Kaufman, who's um, the head of the Department of Politics at Birkbeck College at the University of London. And he originally wrote a paper for the Policy Exchange, which is a UK-based think tank, um, which one of whose directors is David Goodhart, if you're not familiar with who that is, he's one of the kind of key players in the UK's debate about the failures of multiculturalism. And he's one of the first people to make this point going back to 2004, when he published uh, an article in Prospect magazine, which he used to be the editor of, which I think was then republished in The Guardian called Too Diverse? Question mark, in which he basically argues uh, from apparently a left perspective or a left, let's say, a social democratic perspective, that, you know, the UK has reached its limits in terms of integration and social cohesion. So this is referencing multiculturalism and diversity because um, people will no longer want to pay into a welfare state if they don't recognize their neighbors anymore. In other words, if people don't have ethnic affinity with the people who live alongside them, then the welfare state or the social state will fail. That's his basic argument. And if you look, if you trace what's happened since then, so since 2004, and then the, the arguments that came after that, so people like, you know, Angela Merkel talking about the failures of multiculti and David Cameron talking about multiculturalism being an abject failure. And Trevor Phillips is another, you know, important figure in all of this from the UK talking about society sleepwalking to segregation. And then closer to home, if you look at much more recently, Scott Morrison, before the LNP was elected under Tony Abbott, makes a speech in, uh, I think it's 2012 or even the beginning of 2013, in fact, to a, a Muslim community organization in which he talks about the limitations of multiculturalism and the need to kind of talk about national social cohesion and this and integration and all this kind of thing. So we're very familiar with these arguments. And all of this is couched in the terms of not racism. And Eric Kaufman, to come back to him, says this very clearly. So he says his, the name of the paper that he wrote, the working paper that he wrote for, um, the policy exchange is racial self-interest is not racism. And he bases this on a very, you know, methodologically strange study that he did with people who voted for Trump and and in the US and people who voted to leave the European Union uh, during the Brexit referendum in the UK. And he says that all of these people are doing is um, voicing their legitimate concerns about the effects of immigration and the idea that white culture, uh, whatever that is, is eroding 
because of too much um, immigration, and that there and that these people are only you know they're expressing their right to voice concerns about this, and that it's wrong to call these people racist. And so that's why I found the 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 argument from Waver and Buzan. Uh, in response to the article in Security Dialogue. So interesting, because they talk about the offense of calling somebody or a body of work racist. So racism it can only be understood by these authors, by this ensemble of authors, and there's lots of them, and pundits and you know journalists and all of this. It can only be heard as an accusation, a personal accusation, a stain on somebody's character, rather than being descriptive, objectively descriptive of a situation. Namely, in this case, the fact that securitization studies mobilizes tropes of anti-blackness, uh, is Eurocentric, fails to take colonialism seriously, et cetera, et cetera, which are the critiques made in the original uh, article. So that's kind of a long-winded way of getting to, <laughs> to that question. <laughs> well, it does also, I guess, raise the question you've referred to a number of these um, scholars and others as uh, tied to the left mm. you also discuss uh, something called the white left and how, what's its approach to questions of race and mm. racism could you speak a little bit more about that i know you i think you begin the chapter with a discussion of a, a skit that appeared on oh, yeah. um, <laughs> an abc show mm. uh which cast the 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 so-called anti-racist as this insufferable hipster mm. who was content to moralize about others uh, failings in this regard can you um explain why it's necessary to dig a little deeper into those sorts of performances mm. and what it says about our understanding and the understanding of the left generally mm. in terms of its approach to these sorts of questions yeah and it, it ties to to that other argument because Basically, just to, just to cycle back a little bit, just to make it clear, the argument that I make about not racism is that it's not just that it's a get out clause, right? Like, you know, obviously here you're being racist and you're pretending not to be racist, which is a facile thing to say, like big deal, right? What I try to do in my work is to look at the original definition of racism and to argue that it isn't fit for purpose. Because if we look at how racism develops historically as a concept, it develops alongside, uh, like in parallel to the continuation of what we can call the racial colonial. So in other words, a race-based system of differentiation and governance is going full steam ahead in the colonial context. Meanwhile, some scholars within the European context are getting a little bit uncomfortable with the idea that you can divide European populations according to race, which is, of course, what the, the fascists were trying to do in the, we're talking about the 1920s and the 1930s and even earlier, right? If we think about the Dreyfus affair, so raging anti-Semitism, uh, et cetera, et cetera, right? And they were uncomfortable with that. So they start to theorize something which we now think of as ideological racism. So a belief in the inferiority or the, let's say, the genetic or the biological inferiority of certain groups of people. And they start quite selectively applying this to some groups and, and, and sort of conveniently leaving out of the picture other groups. So as I show in the book, there's a whole set of people who are basically physical anthropologists working in, 
in the French context who quite you know, comfortably continue doing racial experimentation, like straight up racial science stuff in the colonial context and say things like black people have 20% less of the brain capacity of white people and things like that, while at the same time, um, sort of theorizing racism as something that's unacceptable within Europe itself, right? So basically, I argue that when you take that understanding of racism, which casts it as this moral problem of something, you know, that's about individual behavior, um, which is discriminatory against people on a, on, as people, as individuals, rather than looking at systems and how they function, um, based on a racializing logic, right? And then you, then, and then you, you step away from that. It, you have no way of thinking. So this, okay, let me try to explain that a bit better. You then end up with a separation between race as a, as a system of power and racism as a kind of an accusation against the individual, right? And so again, when I take it into the third chapter, which is the one that you were referring to, which starts off with um, a reference to the tonightly sketch about identity politics, the, the, the guy, the comedian who, who does this sketch basically says it's, it's really unhelpful. And this word unhelpful keeps bringing, being brought up again and again to call people racist if they don't believe that they're racist and that the left, the argument is, shoots itself in the foot by bandying about this term racism. And actually, that's exactly the same argument that Buzan and Waver make, that it's so egregious to call somebody a racist that it's damaging to anti-racists okay now i think that's really interesting and problematic because in other words again you haven't at all understood what race does in terms of again the management of human difference with the um, aim of maintaining white supremacy all you can see is this hurt feelings of being called a racist which which you don't like and so i i argue in the chapter that you know, when you say, um, don't make this about race, okay, what you're actually saying is I'm not concerned by looking seriously and constructively at how race continues to underpin and, and, and shape the life chances of so many people living among us, right, living on the planet with us. Um, you're simply saying that, you know, you're waving a red flag in my face and making it uh, and making things unhelpful and uncomfortable for people who don't deserve that kind of treatment. Uh, and so, and, and so, and the, the, the argument then takes it to, um, the discussions which are interminable online, for example, about identity politics. And I asked the question, which, you know, the question is often posed, um, isn't, aren't identity politics a distraction from anti-racism? And I change that question and I say, well, isn't talking about identity politics as a distraction from anti-racism the real distraction from anti-racism? In other words, a mountain is made out of the molehill of some extremist, uh, if you like, or extreme types of expressions of identity, uh, very often in online spaces, and the left or the problems of the left or the problems of anti-racism, and these two things are not the same. That's the other problem is assuming that the left is anti-racist, right? But the problems of the left and the problems of anti-racism are boiled down to some people making comments that we find uncomfortable centered around this kind of caricature of identity politics, which nobody really knows what it is anymore. In talking about uh, racism, um, it's, a, it's a meme on the right and the extreme right that uh, a fellow called um, Trotsky 
invented the concept of racism in the early 20th century. And this is tied to notions of uh, anti-racism in some fashion is tied to some kind of subversive project uh, to uh, revolutionise and just destroy Western civilization. Can you clarify uh, where this concept of racism came from and did Trotsky actually invent it? Uh, I don't know and I don't think so. I mean, my research hasn't unveiled that. I think that th there's still work to be done on exactly when and how the concept of racism was first used. But, uh, and there's some useful work being done by Professor Wolf Hund in Germany. He's got, uh, an article out on this, I think, but he's also got a project which he's pub, which he kind of keeps adding to, which he publishes on his academia.edu, um, site. Uh, because he's doing quite, he's, he's kind of a historical sociologist and he does this research. But I think the word, uh, racism itself was first used in the very late 1800s. Um, again, I mean, I can send you the link for this research that he's been doing and it's used in various ways, uh, mainly within anthropology. So mainly by people who are working on race. In other words, in physical anthropology, so kind of racial experimentation, um, they are the ones who start to coin this idea that there's an ideology of racism, which is about um, a political project to enact racial discrimination against people of color, colonized people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Speaking of uh, anti-Semitism, mm. uh, something you note in the book is the curious fact that at the same time as we see another rise in popular strike movements and uh, a tendency towards fascism, we're also seeing a massive surge of opposition to anti-Semitism. And uh, it would seem that the Jews had never had so many friends. Um, <laughs> could you speak to what you see is actually happening there? Yeah, look, this is really interesting. I mean, I, I, really interesting and really horrifying, okay? Um, it's really... It's really a horrible feeling to be weaponized, to become a weapon of fascists, of people who I know would readily kill me. You know, that's, that's really horrifying. But basically what I think is happening, and I think a good test case for this, or the case study of this, was the Labour Party, the British Labour Party, um, anti-Semitism crisis, if you like, which was raging under the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn, but also other kind of smaller instances around, you know, the hysteria around a figure like Ilhan Omar in the United States, and also a little bit around stuff um, in the Australian, a much smaller way around Josh Frydenberg. I wrote an article in The Guardian about this. You know, so basically what you have is the fight against anti-Semitism and I mean, I use the word fight in enormous inverted commas because these people are not fighting anti-Semitism in any kind of way. But let's say the struggle or the opposition to anti-Semitism becoming a proxy for anti-racism. So people who have um, made open pronouncements against anti-Semitism on the left, and it's always only left anti-Semitism that they're concerned with, they're not concerned with right anti-Semitism, suddenly become... Uh, the world's greatest anti-racist. And it doesn't actually matter what kind of other racism they've pronounced, be it Islamophobia, that's the, the most obvious one, um, because Islamophobia is all, often, is always counterpoised to anti-Semitism, but also anti-blackness, anti-Roma racism. I mean, you name it. These people don't shy away from other forms of racism, but nevertheless wave their support for Israel and their opposition to anti-Semitism, and these things go together as evidence of their anti-racism. And I mention Israel because, of course, 
The anti-Semitism that they have in mind is very often the confusion with anti-Zionism, the convenience, you know, reduction of uh, an opposition to Israeli colonialism to anti-Semitism. And this, for me, is in itself anti-Semitic, because, of course, what it does is completely negate, you know, the existence and the legitimacy of anti-Zionist Jews. So people like myself then, in an amazing kind of irony, are named anti-Semitic by, most often, white Christian people who then become the arbiters of what anti-Semitism is and is not. On a slightly different tack, I think it's all related to the functioning of how uh, these concepts manifest themselves in the in real life and in yeah. real very solid ways for people. The COVID-19 crisis, mm. uh, the British government's initial response to it, I think you could very generously describe as laissez-faire. <laughs> yes. uh, the plan to, you know, just let it run wild until herd immunity was achieved. Mm. You wrote a recent piece for The Guardian in which you noted both that a uh, the COVID was disproportionately affecting uh, black, Asian and minority ethnic people within the UK, but also that there remains within the British conservative establishment, this cohort of uh, people who are still campaigning against lockdowns, who are still mm. on the herd immunity bandwagon. Mm. That, that includes people like uh, Toby Young from the yeah. phrenology blog Quillette, mm. but uh, also... <laughs> I guess others who've campaigned against anti-racism as restricting free speech. Yeah. Uh, what do you think that speaks to, that there's this lack of regard for human life, I suppose? Oh, look, I mean, I think that these this is a, a very, very purposeful project of, you know, open support, no longer hidden, if it was ever hidden, support for eugenics. And I think what I tried to do in the article, and unfortunately, it's, you know, it's short because the nature of these things, but I have a longer video that I also posted, which goes into greater detail about this. I link it to the, er the work that I earlier described on not racism. So not racism, just to, again, to define it, is not only the denial of racism, but it's actually the redefinition of racism um, as something that can only be defined by those who are unaffected by it. Uh, in other words, white people telling people of color what racism is because they are, quote unquote, more objective. And I've described this as a form of discursive racist violence because it actually, you know, violently denies the experience of people uh, who have to live with racism every day uh, of their lives. And if you track the people who've been the most um, vociferous about the need for herd immunity in the UK, uh, among the punditry and, you know, some of these academics, Toby Young being the most obvious one, then you can see that over recent years, they've been openly supportive of the discussion of eugenics as just another talking point on what they would call the marketplace of ideas. So it's by no surprise that you have Toby Young uh, attending the so-called secret uh, eugenics conference that was held for a number of years at UCL, which was also attended by Noah Carl, who is um, a young racial scientist, for want, for want of a better word, who was a postdoc at Cambridge until a couple of years ago, at which point he was dismissed when Cambridge found that his work was deeply unethical. But a group of um, academics, uh, including the aforementioned Eric Kaufman, so again, to remind you, uh, the author of that report, Racial Self-Interest is Not Racism, and also a a subsequent book which elaborates on that called White Shift, which is about white identity, um, they have collectively uh, gathered a fund for Noah Carl, which I think was 
raised over £150,000 in his support. And these are the people who time and again put out into the public sphere this notion that we are just simply having academic debate. So, and it, and it would be an attack on their academic freedom to say that they don't have, you know, to, to argue that it's irresponsible to talk about things like uh, the kind of thing that Toby Young says, which is, you know, really we should be having a genetic intelligence that you could input into the brains of, uh, you know, lower caste people who are, you know, less, apparently less intelligent, this kind of thing, or the kind of, um, you know, uh, arguments in support of liberal or so-called progressive eugenics, which is the ways in which these authors like, um, well, authors is a big word for them, but let's say, uh, I don't know what you would call them, people like Noah Carl, and also another fellow who, when I was president of the Australian Critical Race and Whiteness Studies Association, we 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 wrote an open letter about um, this fellow, Jonathan Anomaly, who published um, an article called Defending Eugenics in the Monash Bioethics uh, Review. So what I argue in the article is that the openness of the media and academia to these types of arguments lays the ground for today it being acceptable to argue that herd immunity is a viable solution to the COVID-19 crisis. I mean, that should be beyond the pale in any society that thinks of itself as civilized. And we know what, you know, what was done in the name of civilization historically and today, so maybe we shouldn't be surprised. But I think that without the media and academia providing the opportunity for these opinions to be aired, then we wouldn't have come to a situation where so many were ready to hear this as just another policy proposal. Well, we'll have to leave it there, Alana. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, if people want to grab the book, it is available through Polity Books, and it is called Why Race Still Matters. And you can also find Alana's tweets at Alana Lenton. Global Intifada is up next. Catch you next week. See you later. Many of you will be familiar with 3CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser. It's when you, our listeners, literally keep the station going with your generous donations. It's a vibrant and busy time each June at the station and an all-in effort from our volunteers, staff and supporters. But in 2020, under the COVID-19 restrictions, we need to do things a little bit differently. So stay tuned for our June Station Appeal. It'll be online, on point, and be asking those of you who can to make a donation to keep 3CR alive. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity.